Reading from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We'll be starting a new series this morning on the book of Romans. This is something I've been wanting to do. Many of you are aware that I work kind of in tandem with Pastor Matt Vanhavel of Covenant Christian Reformed Church in Calgary. And um, when we decided, well, when I decided and he decided to come along for the ride that we are going to do Romans, I told him, um, I have no idea how long this ride will be. There are 16 chapters in Romans, and there's at least two sermons in every chapter, so that would be 32 sermons, which is a pretty long series, I realize, and there will be some breaks in there. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the pastor of Westminster Chapel in London for about 35 years, preached on Romans on Friday evenings at 7.30, and people came out to uh, hear him speak after work, listened to a sermon on a Friday evening before they went home for dinner, which was pretty remarkable in itself. Lloyd-Jones preached 366 sermons on the book of Romans. I am not shooting to beat his record. This morning it might feel like it because I'm going to preach a whole sermon on one verse, Romans chapter one, verse one but Lloyd-Jones preached on that verse five times. So um, I, I just want you to know that um, I really don't know exactly where this goes. It will certainly take us through the Lenten season and to Easter and beyond that, but there is so much in this brilliant epistle by the Apostle Paul that we could not possibly spend too much time digging deep and looking at what, what God is saying to the church through Paul's letter to the Romans. And just before we start, let's look to him once again in prayer. Father, as we come to open your word this morning, we know that the natural man does not receive the things of your word because they are spiritually discerned. So we need your spirit to move in us, to illuminate your word, to give us understanding of the things that were said so long ago but remain so relevant for our day. And Father, we pray that as you give us understanding, you would also graciously give us hearts to receive and wills to put into practice that which we will hear from your word this morning. Speak, O Lord, until your church is built and the world is filled with your glory, we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So we first come to meet the author of this epistle to the Romans in Acts chapter 7, 
verses 57 and 58. That is the occasion on which Stephen, who was one of the original deacons of the church at Jerusalem, was martyred. And he had just given a lengthy and very eloquent defense of his faith in Christ by taking the people that were trying him through basically the entire Old Testament. I think Stephen did much what Jesus did on the road to Emmaus when he opened the scriptures and he showed those disciples from the law and the prophets how all of these things pointed to him and, and brought the gospel into this sharp focus. Well, Stephen did the very same thing. The results were somewhat different in verse 57 of Acts chapter 7, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. That would be Stephen, so no childishness here, like plugging your ears and screaming, oh Canada, so you don't have to hear what's being said by the person who's speaking to you. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. I know sometimes when we see pictures of this in illustrated Bibles, Saul is a very young man, almost just a boy, there's no reason to believe that that's true. Saul had come from Tarsus and had come to Jerusalem to study at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the greatest teachers of the law in that day, and evidently he'd reached the point of graduation because we find that Saul approved of Stephen's execution, and then we're going to find out that he stopped studying at that point and he went on with other things in his life. So this is not a very auspicious beginning for one who will later author about a third of the New Testament. But this is the beginning and, and there we have it because it gets worse. In the very next chapter, Acts chapter 8, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. By the way, this is what Jesus had in mind when he met with his disciples in Galilee before his ascension, and he said, as you go into all the world, make disciples. Go was not an imperative. He wasn't telling them, you must go, this is my commandment. He was just saying, you know what, a day is coming, and it's coming pretty soon when you're going to go into all the world. It's a participle phrase. And the command is, as you go, make disciples, teach the nations, literally. And so this is the beginning of that dispersal of the Christian church from its birthplace at Jerusalem into the entire Roman Empire. They begin the task of evangelizing the world because they begin to suffer persecution at the hands of the Jews. I recently heard someone say the problem with pastors today, so ouch, but the problem with pastors today is that no one is trying to kill them um, because when people are trying to kill us, things tend to expand and go places with the gospel. This persecution was no exception, Acts chapter 8 verse 3, but Saul was ravaging the church, that word has all the force that you might associate with it, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. 
See, Saul was described as a young man, but this isn't a matter of some sort of a boyish indiscretion on his part, getting caught up in the moment and going out to help others persecute the church of Jesus Christ. Saul had graduated from the school of Gamaliel, and he was persuaded that the church of Jesus Christ was a heretical sect that needed to be wiped out. He was a young man, but he was also a very serious man. And at the beginning of Acts chapter 9, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So in the initial round of persecution, they went after all of the Christians who were in Jerusalem and they fled. And then Saul said, you know what, they can run, but they can't hide. Give me letters so that I can go to Damascus and I can root these people out and bring them back in chains to Jerusalem. And all of this is why in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, Paul describes himself as, quote, a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. That is his own self-identification there. He's saying, during those days, those days of my youth when I was so zealous for what I thought was the faith of my forefathers, I was actually a blasphemer. We need to keep that in mind because it's not our zealousness or our sincerity that decides whether or not we are blasphemers. It's the word of God. And when the word of God says, this is God's way, walk ye in it, if we refuse to walk in it, we are blasphemers. Furthermore, Paul says, a persecutor and an insolent opponent. He was not what we might think of as a hot prospect for evangelism. He was feared by the church. We read about this in the book of Acts, and people being people, and I'm sure they were not that much different then than we are today. The fact that he was feared, the fact that he had carried off men and women in chains and thrown them into prison, I'm pretty sure he was universally loathed by the church of Jesus Christ as well. When he was finally converted to Christ, having been blinded on the road to Damascus as the beginning part of that process, it's not the whole thing, Um, We talk about some of his Damascus Road experiences. God told Ananias, one of the disciples in the city of Damascus, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias. What a coincidence. Come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And at that point, I think we could well imagine Ananias is thinking to himself, huh? The number one persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ is blind and to that extent incapacitated. Is there there really a downside to this? But what Ananias says out loud is, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So kind of like Ananias saying, you're... You're sure about this, Lord. Just want to just clarify. That Saul, Saul of Tarsus, you want me to go to him and lay hands on him and heal him of his blindness? And God was sure. 
The Lord said to Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And I don't know, maybe that made the task slightly less repugnant for Ananias, thinking, okay, so he who caused so much suffering is about to experience some of the same. By the way, this story appears in Acts chapter 9 and then again in Acts chapter 22 and 26. Chapter 26 has the Reader's Digest condensed version of the conversion of Paul. But chapters 9 and 22 make it really clear that Paul was not converted in what we might call the Damascus Road experience, which as soon as I wrote that down, I thought it sounds, sounds more like a theme park ride or something, you know, at Bible Land, the Damascus Road experience. But that wasn't it. It was the beginning of something. It started something in motion But when Ananias came to him at the house of Judas, he said to Saul, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to every one of what you have seen and heard. And why now do you wait, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name? And this too was part of the experience. It's not just an experience, a a warm glow that filled someone's heart as they encountered the living Christ on the road to Damascus or Calgary or wherever they may happen to be going. There was content there. Saul had been educated in the old covenant scriptures and later he would say to his mentee in the faith, Timothy, from a child you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation. So Paul had all of that content. The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will. What happened on the road to Damascus is what Ananias said next, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth, which is how a person became an apostle. By being in the presence of Jesus, hearing him teach, and being able by faith to proclaim that teaching then to others. There's content here in that Ananias calls Paul to repent beyond those few words that he exchanged with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Ananias says to Saul, what are you waiting for? You got a whole bunch of suffering to do, Paul. You you want to get busy with that, right? So rise, be baptized, wash away your sins, and get on with living out the call of Jesus. And such obedience... When Jesus showed Paul how much he must suffer for the sake of his name, Saul, in effect, said, as you wish. That's why we have the second descriptor after his name, Paul, in Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, and other Bibles are are more accurate in their translation of that word. The Legacy Standard Bible gets us completely right. When they translated Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. It's a far better word to insert into this context. Servant is not strong enough. The late R.C. Sproul wrote in the Greek text, the word that the apostle uses is doulos, which is not properly translated servant. 
A servant in the ancient world was a hired employee, a person who could come and go at will, who could resign from one job and seek employment elsewhere if so inclined. But a doulos was a slave owned by a kyrios, which we translate lord, owned by a master or lord. When Paul said, Paul, a slave, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, he was admitting to being owned. And I can't help but think of the instruction that was given regarding servants in the law of God in Deuteronomy chapter 15, where we read, if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you for six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. But if he says to you, I will not, Go out from you, because he loves you and your household, since he is well off with you. Then you shall take an awl and put it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your slave forever. What Paul is saying in this little reference, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ is something that ought to resonate with all of us because what are we called to do? We are called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and service to God then is not something that we can just walk away from from time to time. You know, I've kind of had enough serving Jesus for now. I'm going to take a little sabbatical. Gonna take a holiday and and go away from you know a holiday. The root of the word is holy day, but it seems like often when we go on holidays, what we're doing is taking a break from holy days. From the very beginning, not seven years in, from the very beginning, Paul seems to have understood as Sproul continued, man is only free when he becomes a slave. To Christ, and this applies to all of us. Man is only free when he becomes a slave to Christ. Without Christ, he is a slave to sin. More on that in Romans chapter 6. But when enslaved to Christ, he knows the royal liberation that only Christ can bring. Paul, inciting his own credentials, regards as his highest virtue that he is a slave of Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't come in the book of Romans, and say, Paul, a graduate of the seminary in the temple environs of Jerusalem with a master's of theology and a doctorate of divinity, I know more than you. Paul comes and he says, a slave of Christ Jesus, his most important qualification. And that idea will become even more important as we work our way through this letter to the Romans, because in chapter 6, Paul is going to ask a question. He'll ask a question to the Roman church, but it could be asked directly to us, and and will be when we get there. Romans 6.16, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? But here's his point. Either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Paul's kind of anticipating that Bob Dylan hit, you got to serve someone. He's saying either you're a slave of sin, you're a slave of righteousness. If you're a slave of sin, that leads to death. If you're a slave of righteousness, 
that of obedience that leads to righteousness. But you are a slave one way or another. And man is only free in the best sense of that word when he becomes a slave to Christ. Because in Romans 6, when Paul is talking about either being a slave to sin or a slave to obedience, in neither case is he referring to the kind of servant who could resign from one job and seek employment elsewhere, if so inclined. You can't be a slave of sin on Friday night and Saturday night and then resign your position as a slave to sin and come to church and be a slave of Christ for an hour on Sunday morning. It doesn't work that way. Paul is speaking of being owned. He is speaking of, dare I say, belonging, body and soul in life and in death. Maybe some of you have heard that somewhere before. Because when we quote Lord's Day 1 of the Heidelberg Catechism, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And we're taught to respond that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We're not talking about belonging like, well, I, you know, the way a puppy might belong to someone who wants to hold it and cuddle it and give it care and, you know, make sure that it's warm and well-fed. We're talking about belonging in the same sense that Paul describes himself as a slave of Jesus Christ. A slave of a kind master would know that his master will look after him very well. In this case, the cost for us to become slaves of Jesus Christ was his own blood. So he's not going to mistreat his servants, his slaves. We can rest in that. That's true. But that belonging aspect's not a one-way street. We're not saying, I belong to Jesus, so Jesus is going to throw all of that comfort and everything that I need my way, apart from the fact that I belong to him as a slave of Jesus Christ, and that he calls me to be a slave, not of sin, but of obedience. For when you were slaves of sin, Paul goes on to say in Romans 6.20, you were free in regard to righteousness. That's what Lord's Day 1 is talking about when it says he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. When we were slaves under the tyranny of the devil, we were free in regard to righteousness. We could live without guilt or at least without much guilt. But as Paul goes on, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. In the Old Testament we read, there is a way that seems right to a man. Seems right in our eyes. But the end of it is the way of death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So when Paul said slave, he meant slave, He wasn't ashamed of it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave, and in a spiritual sense, at least that's all of us, when we were called to come to Jesus Christ by faith for salvation, we were 
slaves to sin. We were dead in trespasses and sins, he says in Ephesians 2, in which we formerly walked. According to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Well, before you came to Christ, that's who you were. You were a son of disobedience. You were walking in the ways not only of the world, but of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, who's now at work. That's Satan, by the way. You're free in regard to righteousness, but only by being a slave of sin. Paul says, he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. Not only did Paul identify himself as a slave or bondservant of Jesus Christ, he went on to point out that it was in his capacity as a slave of Jesus Christ that he was called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. As that word apostle, there's some people today make much of it, it just means someone who is sent out by someone else with or without some extraordinary status as a delegate, envoy, or messenger. But even if extraordinary status does attach to the messenger in any way, as it often seems to do in the New Testament scriptures, then we need to remember that the messenger is not the one who's extraordinary. It's the message. It's not the one who is sent, it's the one who did the sending. In some form of evangelicalism today, there's a bunch of people running around claiming to be apostles. And what they're usually claiming when they say, I am an apostle, is I have authority. So I can speak over the church and over other pastors and over other people because I have been given authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. But when we're talking about apostolic authority, we're not suggesting that there's something special about the man. Paul says he was called even though he was a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent opponent. When Peter and John were on trial in Jerusalem, the members of the Sanhedrin in Acts 4.13 perceived that they were uneducated common men. I love the way the old King James puts that. They perceived that they were ignorant and unlearned men. Not nearly as impressive as the kind of men who themselves made up the Sanhedrin who was trying them at that time. Still, the Sanhedrin took note that Peter and John had been with Jesus. See? The sender. Not the one who was sent. It wasn't Paul who was special or Paul who had authority. It was Christ who sent him who was special. And it was Christ's authority that was resting on his apostles as they went out to build the church. It was the message and not the messenger. There will, of course, be much more to say about this. But here at the beginning of the series, I want us to understand, especially this, when we talk about the message that Paul was sent out to preach, we are talking about the gospel of God, and that is something so much more than the gospel of personal salvation. I point this out because when I was a child, probably even older than that, there's a gospel tract 
And on the front, it had a graphic, something like that. It said, the Romans road to salvation. And thank you, Mary. She made that banner at my request and did it exactly right. And the tract had that kind of a graphic on the front. And the point of the tract was basically so that you as a Christian could take that gospel tract and you could sit down with an unbeliever and you could lead that unbeliever step by step along the Romans road to salvation. So it was to get them from, I am a sinner under the wrath and condemnation of God, to I have called upon Jesus' name, and I know that he is my savior. And that was it. The idea was you could lead a person to Christ using just a few verses, kind of like stepping stones that someone might put in their garden so that they can step from stone to stone and not get their feet muddy while they're crossing the dirt. And all of those verses came from the book of Romans. There were probably a few variations, but the theme went something like this. We are all sinners by nature and by choice. Romans 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's a problem. When Paul says all have sinned, he means all have sinned. He'll spend the the second half of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, and the first part of chapter 3 developing exactly what he means by all have sinned. That's a problem in itself, but it's a big problem because the wages of sin, according to Romans 6, verse 23, is death. But that same verse assures us that we receive eternal life as a free gift. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that salvation can be ours because Romans 5, verse 8, third stone here, God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's funny how just Romans 5, 8, from my childhood days, I want to say, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know what? That was just as accurate. We're all sinners. The wages of sin is death. The free gift of God in Christ Jesus is eternal life. And God shows his love for us in this. While we were sinners, while we were dead in trespasses and sins, Christ died for us. So then Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart one believes and is justified And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And Romans chapter 10 verse 17 tells us that we can have assurance of that salvation in Christ. Because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now there are some contextual issues. And we'll be dealing with those as we go along. But none of those points are wrong. All of those points are true they're all not necessarily made in the best possible way in this foreshortened version of the book of Romans that we call the Romans road but they're all true and if you're here this morning and you have never trusted in Christ as Savior and Lord and never called upon his name if you have not believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confessed with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father then let me encourage you to do that Do that right now. Do that before you leave this building. And if you have further questions, then please see me after the service. These stepping stones are not the Romans' road, 
but they can lead you to the first little waypoint on the Romans road. They can lead you to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So be aware of them. But here's the thing. When Paul said that he was set apart for the gospel of God, he was thinking of something way bigger than that. Personal salvation is an important part of it. You cannot see the kingdom of God if you have not been born again by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so that word of personal salvation does come as good news to sinners. It comes as the gospel to every individual who turns to God through faith in Jesus Christ. But the gospel of Christ is not just good news for individuals. Sadly, we've kind of acted like that sometimes. But I hope we will see in this study that the gospel of Jesus Christ, that gospel which Paul was commissioned by Christ to carry to the ends of the empire, wasn't just good news for such sinful individuals who might hear and turn to Christ as a result of it. It was good news for the universe. It'll take us a while to get there, but in Romans chapter 8, Paul says the entire creation, the entire universe, everything that God made groans as in the pains of childbirth, waiting for this gospel to bear its fruit in the glorious redemption of the sons of God. I was listening to Ken Ham talk, and he was talking about how we sometimes in Sunday school, we tell our children, look out the window and look at the beautiful world that God made. Isn't it majestic and glorious? That world is broken. That world is groaning in childbirth, waiting for the glorious revelation of the sons of God. We have no idea. We cannot comprehend. If you want to try, read some of the works of guys like C.S. Lewis who had way better imaginations than I do. But we can't imagine the beauty and the majesty and the glory of this world as it will be in the day when Christ returns in glory. And all of his saints are raised up. And all that's broken and all that's wrong is going to be fixed and made new. And we're going to see a world like we have never, ever seen before. Romans is good news for the universe. And the Romans' road to salvation cannot be contained in a few short verses that are taken out of that context. The Romans' road to salvation is the whole book of Romans. See, Romans' roads, Roman roads, were not stepping stones to get you across the garden. They used to say all roads lead to Rome, but in reality, the truth of that was all roads led from Rome. All of those roads led from the capital to the end of the empire. And they were built with countless stones that were laid down in sometimes elaborate and interlocking patterns by legions of soldiers. When the Roman legions weren't busy fighting to keep the peace in the empire, they were building roads. So you can think of the Romans' road to salvation, but I don't want you to think of this as merely a guide for those who have yet to come to God by faith in Christ. 
I want you to think about every single verse in this brilliant letter as a stone, every word as a stone which has been set carefully in place by Paul, the slave of Christ and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And those stones have not been set in place to lead us only to personal salvation, sanctification, and service. You'll see the side banners. Sin, salvation, sovereignty, that one's new, and service. That's kind of a big, broad, general outline of this book. We're going to talk about sin. We're going to talk about salvation. Sanctification is part of that. We're going to talk about the sovereign work of God as the one who's working all of those things out. And we're going to talk about the service then that we owe to Christ in gratitude for what he has done. But this Romans road is not merely to lead us to that. It's meant to lead us ultimately to Christ. The authority of this messenger is in the message and the authority of this apostle is in the one who sent him. So Paul was the slave of Jesus Christ and as such when he sat down and wrote this book of Romans he was writing down the words that his master desired him to speak first to the church at Rome and then through the church at Rome to the church at all times and in all places. The Romans' road to salvation, the book of Romans then, well, it's not a gospel tract. It's not my words in the sermons that I hope to preach by the will of God. It's not even truly the word of Paul, the persecutor, slave, apostle, and evangelist. Romans is the very word of the living God, like all of scripture, really. And in it, Christ is calling He is speaking to all of us, not just those of us who don't know him yet. He is speaking to all of us. This is the word of faith that we are proclaiming. And this is the journey to which we are invited. So I want to end this morning exactly where the book itself is eventually going to end. Romans chapter 16, verses 25 to 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said,